Hello and welcome to IoT Innovation. Today we're going to talk about the latest news in IoT and specifically about the network pipe, how it works, who funds it. This episode of IoT Innovation is sponsored by Anritsu. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. Telecomcareers.com. Welcome back to IoT Innovation. Today we're going to speak with Jason Marchek, the Service Director at Current Analysis. And first of all, I'd like to thank you, Jason, for joining me this morning and to talking about uh, the IoT industry in general, but specifically some of the network and infrastructure considerations that, that you cover from your perspective. So maybe first of all, uh, can you tell me a little bit about current analysis and the way you operate with your clients and then really start to talk about some of the, um, the network and infrastructure issues that you're seeing with the IoT landscape? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me. So current analysis is, um, you know, you're relatively... Um, it's an established research firm. Our focus on the market tends to be a bit more tactical than some of the other uh, research houses out there. So what we do is we focus a lot of our attention on individual, um, the companies, how they compete with each other. My particular focus, the group that, um, that I manage, we look very closely at just about anything that an equipment vendor would sell to a network operator to put into their network. So we're dealing a lot with how the Ericsson's and Huawei's and Nokia's Cisco's of the world compete with each other and then also, you know, by extension, how they um, enable their customers to tap into business models such as IoT and things of that nature. And so when we're looking at IoT, I think one of the things that, that we really key on are the network requirements for supporting all the various use cases that are out there. Um, you know, I, we hear a lot of talk about what, what are the network requirements for you know, the grand vision of IoT, and, and that's a very difficult question to answer, as you know, because there are, there are mission critical um, use cases for IoT where you have people's safety at risk, if you're talking about driverless cars or public safety um, from an emergency response point of view. Um, if you're talking about e-health, you know, there's obviously a lot of, of fairly stringent network requirements. If you're talking about soda machines talking to each other, that's, that's a whole different use case and, and set of requirements. So I think that the requirements that, that you know, are, are, are going to come into play and have to be satisfied are extremely varied. And we probably tend to, I mean, as an industry, not just current analysis, but focus on the higher end use cases, how 5G is going to impact and, and enable a lot of these use cases. But I think we are seeing an increased awareness of, you know, there is, to, to really realize this vision of tens of billions of connected devices, we're going to be looking at a fairly substantial low-end network, you know, a signaling network, for, for lack of a better term, just to, just to manage a lot of those just, you know, sensors that are they're really trying to communicate with each other so we started to to look at really both ends of the spectrum um, but I think a lot of the market attention is still on on the higher end yeah absolutely I think you know 4g and 5g and we spend a lot of time working with clients in Europe and they're still talking about the rollout of 4g um, I, I guess I'm, I'm still struggling a little bit with some of the use cases of 4G and even 5G in terms of commercial uh, validity. Uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about the low end, and I agree. I mean, there's been talk by uh, Qualcomm and AT&T and others about low end, uh, very basic networks for many, many years, mm -hmm. and even that this might be a way to use some of the legacy 2G networks. 
yeah. uh, almost a la uh, pager networks in the US 15, 20 years ago. Um, but I really don't feel like that gets enough attention, um, you know, because to scale up a 5G network to handle 10 billion devices, to me, is, is a massive investment from operators that are really still struggling to see the use cases and the, and the ROI from uh, 4G networks, let alone uh, even faster 5G. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, the way we're looking at it and what we're seeing is operators, and you mentioned Europe, and, and let's put a IoT aside for a second. We're, we're, they're looking for return on investment serving their customers. You know, how do they compete with OTTs to deliver, to monetize broadband services, video services, things of that nature that IoTs are giving away, or OTTs are giving away for free, in a sense. And so they're working out the business model investment cycles for just delivering mobile data services. Um, and that's, that, that, that necessarily doesn't even have anything to do with, with IoT. So um, we're seeing that being worked through. I think some of the things that are taking place on the SDN NFV side with digital business enablement, I think we're getting there. Um, some of the agility that's required to, to provide those services. And that you know, will feed into the ability to, to maybe monetize and, and, and do a better job of, of making a business case for IoT use cases. Um, and so what we're seeing, you know, in the U.S. is AT&T, for example, you know, they're, they're one of the most aggressive, I'd say, at least on the public relations front. Um, you know, Verizon and a lot of the other carriers are doing things. They're probably not as in the press about it. But, you know, where they can see the ability to leverage the services that they're delivering now. You know, a connected car program essentially takes a car and makes it just another device on the data plan. So there's a use case there, right? You, you, you increase data utilization, and then you open up channels for perhaps value-added services that can be consumed in a vehicle. Um, so I think that's where we're seeing things start. That's probably on the higher end of, of the network requirements that we're looking at. I think um, you, know, you probably don't need 5G to, to have a robust Wi-Fi, you know, 4G-enabled Wi-Fi experience in your car. Um, when you start to get to things like driverless vehicles or driver assisted, then you're talking about very low latency and, and that's where I think requirements increase. I'm not sure the business case is there quite yet, right? And so um, we're seeing a lot of those things being worked through. And then on the low end, you know, I think that the business case is probably, um, the ROI requirements are probably not quite as stringent. But then again, you know, you're, you, if, if we're talking about having to, to execute on all these 4G, 4.5G moving into 5G requirements, there's spectrum utilization requirements. I mean, you're talking about an all-hands-on-deck approach to spectrum utilization when you start to get into even 4.5G, some of the things that, you know, the vendors are talking about in terms of LTE advanced. That requires a lot of spectrum that otherwise could be used for, you know, these, these lower-end networks. And so there's kind of that, that, that tension between not only the ability to monetize these investments, but also where to find the physical resources from a spectrum standpoint to, to make it all work. I'm glad you brought up spectrum because I think that's, that is a topic that gets a fair bit of attention, or maybe just I watch for it, but it's a fair bit of attention in the US with the FCC allocation. Um, in other countries, I just don't see as much focus on that. And therefore, I think that it will come as a surprise to some countries that they need um, a full range of spectrum allocation for this this ten million uh, ten billion dollar or ten excuse me ten billion quantity of devices attached to a network. I mean, one of the concerns I have is that that in terms of uh, developing countries, 
um, the, the infrastructure spend and the infrastructure investment is going to mean that, that they're going to have to get massive amounts of offshore money just to make sure that this uh, infrastructure exists in the first place, especially as you bring up with driverless cars and, and uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, when, when you start looking at companies like AT&T that are clearly making a play for the, the internationalization of their brand through uh, efforts like this, that the, there are users that are going to expect the same um, experience in other countries that I'm concerned that they may not have um, in the near future unless there's this super massive spend on, on spectrum and on infrastructure. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that even within an advanced or a developed country like the United States, a seamless experience is probably not going to be something that's just going to happen automatically. I mean, I think you're going to have, um, you know, the, the, even now, I mean, broadband experience, even in a country like the United States, isn't necessarily seamless. There's a lot of places in this country that are that are underserved. We talk about the digital divide, which is, you know, night and day from what we might be talking about in places like Africa. But if you're talking about IoT and a seamless experience and some of the requirements that are in place to really make sure you can't lose connectivity um, on a driverless car, you know, so you have to make sure that... Um, even even in a, in a place like the United States that that investment is is there and and I think it is business case driven I think you know when we start to talk about places like Africa and you're mentioning offshore money at least in my mind um, one benefit there is I, I I suspect that things like public health and 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 initiatives that are driven by international aid organizations and foundations is probably going to be um, you know, I don't want to say the low-hanging fruit, but but where that money will come from, and so perhaps you know there is you could see an avenue towards some of that investment coming into play. Um, but I think the larger point that and, and and that's something I think that we we might be overlooking. You know, as we we're looking at IoT and talking about all the use cases. I mean, there's there's a use case for just about everything that you can think of. There's websites, you know, IoT network news where you have. Just about any device you can think of, there's a prototype on that site that you can look at and talk about and, and sort of um, visualize what, you know, what does IoT mean for watering your lawn? What does IoT mean for keeping your teeth healthy? What, do, what does IoT mean for all these other things? The, I think the pervasiveness of the network is something that's absolutely overlooked um, and something that's probably a ways off from... from you know, reaching that that point of where you know you might be able to connect, you, you might have 50 billion things you could connect, but having a network capable of supporting that, I think, as you alluded to, is is something that's a huge challenge and something that really has to be driven by folks like you know uh, national operators, AT and T, and and you know and, and Vodafone and BT and you know DT over in Germany and and basically any any country you can name. Because they have, you know, in addition to having the, the, the money, they have the operational understanding of how to, to approach projects like this. Um, I hear a lot of news from, or noise from Google about the requirements, and, and that's good because Google has the platform, they have the public awareness to, you know, when they say something, people pay attention. Um, you know, they, Ericsson's been talking about 50 billion connected devices for years now. Ericsson's not necessarily in the, the mainstream consciousness the way Google is. So when Google says something, even if it's very similar, people take notice and, and, and it gets the play. And even though Google has a, a pretty fat checkbook, I don't know that they have the operational experience 
to make all of these things happen, let alone the spectrum assets and, and you know, the, the, really the financial motivation necessarily. So it is a complex ecosystem that, that probably has not come together in a, in a way that needs to come together. And, and that's not to say it's not happening. I still think we're in a pretty nascent um, phase of this market. But I do think it points to a lot of technology issues and business issues that really have to come together in a, in a pretty substantial way to really make this happen. Yeah, so I'm glad you you talk about the uh, the Google connection. I mean, from my point of view, I've seen over the last 25 years, in many cases, um, industry needs many joined up partners to understand the same way uh, that something needs to change. And in many cases, there's been examples where if that understanding is not uh, across the board, then either the industry doesn't change or somebody has to take a firm stand. Uh, and as an example, when uh, Qualcomm was trying to get CDMA off the ground, they basically took a, a financial stake in, a, in South America uh, and in the operator community. And when they were trying to get devices, they basically ended up having to build them themselves. I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of seeing the same thing with Google with regards to their voice services. Um, and I guess what this points to to me is that um, maybe, maybe industry, maybe consumers um, can't wait for the whole industry to get on the same page. Um, as you're talking with operators around the world, do you sense that too? Do you think they really uh, thoroughly understand what IoT is all about? Um, is, there a, is, is there the opportunity to educate them in a different way or to make them see the ROI that maybe uh, they're not seeing at the moment? I would say at, at probably a technical level, I suspect they understand even if they don't understand all the ins and outs of it, they understand the magnitude of complexity that, that could be involved. Um, I, I think what they don't necessarily understand or have, uh, it's, it's proven problematic to overcome or is the business case and you know, the idea of how to make money off these things. And that's why I think things like you know, when you're talking about from a from a network operator's point of view, a lot of the transformation that's going on in the back office with respect to um, cloudifying BSS systems to make them more agile, to make them um, to to so that they have the ability to bill for some of these services. And we're not again not talking about IoT, but necessarily um, OTT type services. You know, business or digital type services. Um, the ability to, to create a digital storefront and, and, and make that ecosystem work and, and make money off it. So I think that some of the things you're seeing in the back office that aren't you know, overtly tied to IoT are going to then feed into the ability to make money in a, in a variety of different ways. And I think that's really what the operator is, has recognized. Um, it's, it's taken a while to get there. I think it's taken a while and it's taken the, the competition from the OTTs to make them realize that, hey, you know, we just can't charge for, for bits and bytes anymore. You know, we have to get creative on, on what the packages look like, on what the services look like, and what the value add is to the customer that's, that's consuming these services. Um, so I think they've realized and they've really gotten on board with the idea that they have to be a lot more creative in the way they approach their customers. In order to do that, they've had to, to, or they're still doing, they're still having to, to affect a lot of transformation in, in their OSS and BSS systems. As that happens, I think they're going to be in a much better position to take advantage of things like IoT and make these various business cases that we might not know about right now to, to be able to explore those. Um, if we move into to, to things where we have 
you know, this agile development and a lot of the things that are, are kind of talked about in the context of SDN and NFV, what that points to is the ability, you know, we've, we've heard this in the industry for quite a long time now, the fail fast type model. And I think to, to fully exploit the potentials of IoT from a business case point of view, you really have to be able to be able to throw stuff up against the wall. If it sticks, great. If it doesn't, that's fine. Move on. Um, so, you know, it's a long answer, but I do think that operators understand, and, and everybody, I, there's there's going to be use cases that come up, there's there's going to be business models and, and monetization models that make more sense. Um, so there, there doesn't necessarily have to be this nirvana where we have 35, 40 billion connected devices to to mean that IoT is, is adding value and, 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 and fulfilling some of its promise. Um, but we do have to have, from the operator perspective, I think, the ability to be more agile in the way that they conduct their own business in order to make this, you know, a really meaningful um, kind of global phenomenon. So picking up on something you said earlier, I mean, I, I loved your example of uh, the low latency aspect required by autonomous vehicles. I think that's one of the first times I've really heard uh, articulated well the, the challenge of 5G and, and why people will pay for it. Um, other examples I've talked about with a couple of clients is, is for example, telemedicine. Um, and not from a prescription perspective, but actually telemedicine from a surgery perspective. Mm. I'd, rather, I'd rather there was very low latency if someone's operating on me from a few thousand miles away. Um, what, what are some other examples of things that you're seeing as the justification of how to monetize 5G? Because um, I, I think that one of, that was one of the gaps I saw in 4G's rollout was people really weren't talking about the really super compelling reasons to do it in the first place. So, you know, telemedicine is absolutely something, you know, we touched on it a little earlier in developing markets. I think there's a tremendous societal value there. So um, I think that it'll, it'll, it will attract, attract investment. I think, you know, one of the things that just to, to, to quickly close the loop on driverless cars, I mean, where the business case in my mind there is not necessarily you or I just, you know, paying for the ability to, to kick back when we're driving and not necessarily have to take the wheel, but, but transportation. I mean, we've heard, I've heard the, the CTO of Ericsson say many, many times that, you know, when he has conversations with counterparts at the automa uh, automobile manufacturers, say in 10 years, 15 years, whatever the time frame is, they're not going to be selling automobiles, they're going to be selling transportation. And so this idea, you know, sort of a Jetsons-like, you know, um, thing where you're just kind of, there's, there's vehicles, you know, going down the road or whatever it is, and you sort of hop in, hop out, you, you have a subscription transportation, be that train, be it a car, be it um, whatever it might be, that's where the business model comes in. Um, and so I think that there's, I think that the, the, the companies, there's, there's a lot of folks that, that aren't necessarily getting headlines that, that are looking 5 to 10 to 15 years in the future and, and understanding the basics of, of, of what needs to be done. And so there's, that's probably something that we might not have seen in 4G. I think with 4G it was really about just delivering faster data rates. Um, with 5G I think we're starting to see, and you know, when we, when we talked about 4G, we started to hear this, this multi-screen type of a, an environment where you could seamlessly go from your laptop to your television to a phone and, and, and really have your services follow you, single identity, all these types of things. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think that just, just faster data rates got you there. And so I think that when you talk about 5G, 
and bring in the idea of HetNets. You know, you bring in the idea of if it's not just super fast mobile broadband, it's seamless connectivity, regardless if it's a fixed or, uh, a, you know, a, a, a mobile bearer. Then you're starting to get to the point where, okay, a lot of these, a lot of these concepts that started to become popularized whenever you know LTE data rates became you know available. I think you're starting to see the ability to maybe execute on those in 5G. And so um, it, again, it's not a hundred percent IoT centric, but as operators start to be able to monetize the idea of having your services follow you everywhere. HBO, a lot of the, the you know the, the content companies are, are really the first ones to be able to do this. Um, so they're you know they're selling subscriptions to you know have your HBO wherever you want it. Um, that's only going to uh, when we're talking about IoT and things of that nature, that's where 5G really becomes a, a fundamental enabler. And so, you know, what am I seeing in terms of specific use cases or specific um, opportunities? I think that the ones, you know, I think that, uh, you know, education. I think a lot of the things that have altruism attached to it in some way, because like you said, we're going to have to have investment more, you know, probably a lot more than from just the private sector. We're going to have to get public uh, money involved. We're going to have to get foundations involved. We're going to have to, to get a lot of money in here. So things that you can, where there's a societal benefit, I think are going to be the first things that really, um, you know, that really get conquered might not be the right word, but, but addressed from the higher end perspective. Now from the lower end perspective, you know, we're already seeing um, shipping container and shipping companies really take advantage of sensors and, and, and really helping them manage their inventories a lot better, manage how they deliver perishable goods. Um, so you're getting things to market a lot quicker. And, and you know, there's this, this movement, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just in the US, it, it might be all over the place, this, this sort of you know, micro kind of farm to market type thing with, with food distribution. Um, that, in a way, is putting pressure on the large, you know, you know, the large manufacturers to make sure that they're delivering, you know, f freshness in bulk and, and, and things of that nature. So I think on the low end, you're seeing transportation and the movement of goods in a much more um, automated and, and logical manner. You know, UPS and a lot of the freight delivery companies are really taking advantage of this stuff. So. That's where I see money being made today, and then in the future, I think it's really some of the societal good type stuff, whether it's education, whether it's public health, um, public safety, things of that nature. So that's great. So Jason, as, a, as kind of a last question, I, one of the aspects that we've talked about quite a bit in this series is, is the internationalization of IoT, and, and not from the perspective of um, US-led technology or media-led technology going to the rest of the world, but the reverse. Yeah. And, the example I've come back to many times is is mobile payments and how much of that mobile banking infrastructure started in, in uh, Southern Africa and, and in uh, different parts of Asia. Are you seeing examples like that that are driving um, infrastructure investment in other parts of the world that you think the U.S. is not yet caught up with? So I think mobile payments is absolutely the best example. Um, you know, you're seeing, and that's where you know we talked about an operator has a vested interest in making that happen, right? If if you if you're an operator and you're in a if you're serving um, customers, and it's you know it's it's all over the developing world, not necessarily just Africa, but if you're serving these these customers, and you can enable them to 
to you know to, to conduct commerce or conduct their business in ways they've never had access to, and and, and in turn, what that does is it, it raises their standard of, of living. ARPU's rise, right, and and that's really where you know I think these these operators in, in, in some of the developing markets really have to to get creative. Is how are they going to use their infrastructure? to basically enable their customers to pay them more. You know, it's, a, it's I guess, a virtuous cycle, in, depending on how you look at it. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that, that things like that are, are absolutely places where they're far ahead of the U.S. I think health is, is absolutely one of them as well. Um, there are mechanisms in place, but there's also, I mean, the, the U.S. health system is, is kind of in the news over the last couple years, several years, for being in a, in a state of turmoil and a state of flux and a state of transition, whatever you want to, however you want to characterize it, you know, I, I think on the one side where you have public health systems that are, are, are mature in places like Europe, um, you don't necessarily have to deal with the uncertainty of how all the different parties are getting paid, which, you know, that's, that's really what's, you know, somewhat at the heart of the U.S. healthcare problem right now is how do all these, these different parties get paid under a, a sort of a single-payer system? And in places like Europe, that that's problem has been solved. So technology can then come in and there's not just the fundamental, you know, blocking and tackling that needs to be done there. So I think health is, is one of them. I think finance is, is absolutely one of them. And if you put those two together, that's those are two very powerful forces that are going to come together and, and you know, they can sort of, probably I think the U.S. can, can take some lessons from, from them in those two areas. Yeah, that, that's pretty compelling. In fact, um, we've had a client recently that's chosen to um, go through the regulatory approval cycle for a medical product um, in Europe uh, ahead of the U.S. actually because of the timeline and because it, there's less, uh, less parties at the table that need to nod, nod their head yes at the same time. Right. Um, so, so, so just to finish up, but, um, firstly, Jason, I want to thank you for joining me to talk about IoT from a network infrastructure perspective. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking with some of those network providers um, in the US and Europe to try and understand their view on this and the way they're viewing IoT in general. Um, and maybe Jason, I can ask you to come back in a few weeks and talk some more about some particular case studies that you're seeing um, in this industry, because I think you know that the IoT landscape is going to continue to change at a pretty fast pace. Um, you know, certainly it's been moving pretty quickly so far, but I don't think that's slowing time down anytime soon. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, be more than happy to come back anytime. Thanks for having me. So with that, um, thank you very much to Jason Marchek from Current Analysis. Um, this was IoT Innovation, and I'm Chris Hare. I look forward to speaking to you again next week. IoT Innovation is a production of RCR-TV. To reach Chris Hare or suggest a show topic for IoT Innovation, you can reach Chris at cbh at ntete.com. To find out more about IoT Innovation and all things wireless, visit rcrwireless.com.